This is Dr. Barry Menon for ReachMD, and today it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Sarah Hallberg to our program. Welcome, Dr. Hallberg. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Menon. It's wonderful to be with you today. Dr. Hallberg is the medical director at Verta Health and a fellow of the Aspen Institute's Health Innovator Fellowship and a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. She is also the medical director and founder of the Medically Supervised Weight Loss Program at Indiana University Health Arnett and an adjunct professor of clinical medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. Hallberg is chair of the Scientific Advisory Council as well as a member of the board of directors with the Nutrition Coalition. Dr. Hallberg is a diplomate of the American Board of Internal Medicine, American Board of Obesity Medicine, and the American Board of Clinical Lipidology, and is a registered exercise physiologist by the ACSM. Now let's get started. Dr. Hallberg, it seems self-evident that a high-carb diet would be bad for both prediabetes and type 2 diabetes simply because it would require more insulin secretion from the beta cells. Why do you think that the American Diabetes Association has been promoting a high-carbohydrate diet until very recently? This is a great question and really a piece of history first, which is that actually a low-carbohydrate High-fat diet was the way we used to treat both type 1 and type 2 diabetes before the discovery of insulin. After insulin's discovery, unfortunately, we got into the mindset of just cover whatever anyone is eating with medication. First, it was insulin and then the discovery of more medications for glycemic control. And so that was problem number one is just that mindset of you can eat whatever you want, but we'll cover it with medication. And number two is the problem of the low-fat diet. So again, we got into the mindset that fat needs to be restricted for a healthy diet. But unfortunately, when you go back to look at the evidence for this, it really didn't exist when this proclamation was made. And so if we're trying to avoid fat and we remember that there are only three macronutrients, fat, proteins and carbohydrates. If the fat goes down, the carbohydrates logically have to go up. And again, very bad for someone who is struggling with prediabetes or diabetes. But this is the dogma that went forward and unfortunately has persisted for decades now. And if we stop to think of the basic physiology here, when someone eats carbohydrates, their blood sugar and insulin goes up. When someone consumes fat, neither of those things happen. Since the problem with diabetes is elevation of blood sugar, what we should be instructing and encouraging patients with diabetes to eat is the macronutrient that won't cause blood sugar to go up. And that, of course, is fat. Yes, and that is a difficult job to change patients' minds about, but more on that later. Let's talk about weight management and weight maintenance once the loss happens. Now, for many, a low-carb or ketogenic diet is hard to stay with. Could you share with us any pearls of success that you have had with this approach? Absolutely. And I think actually that a low-carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet actually is not that difficult for people to adhere to, but I think that's just, again, the line of thinking people have. I mean, one of the first things that you have to help patients with is just overcoming the fear of fat. And I think, again, that fear of fat, we've got this mindset, again, that, you know, fat is bad and helping people overcome 
switch that paradigm is challenge number one. But once they do that and they actually get a taste of what foods are like that have fat added back into them, they really enjoy it. And people can't imagine going back. And a really important piece of the sustainability of this is actually seen in the trial that we recently published. So we had a trial of 262 patients with type 2 diabetes that we put on a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet with the intention of inducing nutritional ketosis. And after a year, what we found is an 83% retention rate. 83%. That's incredibly high in any nutrition study. And it really argues against the idea that this is not sustainable. The key is that you have to teach the dietary principles appropriately and provide support for patients. What else do you do to help turn them around in terms of fat? I give a a long lecture when patients begin in our clinic um, at Indiana University Health, and we have much information at the clinic at Verda Health that we give to patients focusing a lot on fat. And again, I think it's breaking down that fear of it and why fat actually can be good for metabolic health instead of negative. And it goes a lot back to insulin physiology and explaining macronutrients in detail to patients. In your approach to overweight and obese patients, are there fundamental differences in your techniques with patients who have diabetes, prediabetes, and those without? There's not actually a difference. And the reason for that is, although over 50% of the adult population has diabetes or prediabetes, not everyone who's overweight or obese does. But most of the people who are overweight or obese do have insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is a special case and has to be treated very specifically with what we eat. Look, if we look at humans who do not have insulin resistance, who are metabolically healthy, and we look and take a note from different cultures, what we see is that there's a very wide continuum of what people can eat and maintain good health. We see some of the island cultures where they eat a very high carbohydrate diet yet have very low rates of coronary artery disease compared to Inuits or Maasai warriors who have an incredibly almost no carbohydrate diet, incredibly high in saturated fat and have the same very low levels of coronary artery disease. So again, humans can exist on this continuum until enter in insulin resistance. And once insulin resistance comes into play, really we're limited to diets that are more restricted in carbohydrates if we want to lose weight and control metabolic disease. Dr. Hallberg, do you use anorectic agents? And if so, could you please describe what regimens in your experience may work better in certain patient types? Yes, I do use medications to assist patients with weight loss in some instances. The most common medication that's used is fentramine. I use 37.5 milligrams. I always start patients with a half a dose in the morning for a week, followed by an increase to a full dose. The reason that fentramine is my first line is that it is inexpensive and it has good safety data. So I rarely have anyone who has a side effect to fentramine. I find most people, however, don't need it. 
when they're decreasing their carbohydrates and increasing fat, that increase of fat provides satiety for them. Again, everybody is different, and there are some people who still could have issues with hunger, and in those cases, fentramine would be my first choice. I have as well used Topamax in the past. I like that in someone especially who's having difficulty with peripheral neuropathy. So these are patients maybe with type 2 or longstanding type 1 diabetes. It's excellent, sort of kills two birds with one stone, if you will, and helps with the pain and also can help with appetite. Those are by far the most two common medications used in my practice. Now, on to something that is a real issue for many of us, and that's dealing with stress eating, sometimes called emotional eating, as you know. We see it commonly, and the medical literature is not very helpful on this. Could you shed some light on dealing with stress eating? Yes, that's an excellent question, and you're right about the lack of papers on this in the medical literature, and it is such a challenge for providers. So I think that one of the keys to helping patients with stress eating is to prepare them when there's not stress around. I mean, having worked with patients on weight loss for 25 years now, I'll tell you the number one reason that people veer off plan and succumb to stress eating is some sort of life crisis. And it's different for patient A than it is for patient B. But Life crises are going to happen. They happen to everybody all the time. And so you need to prepare people for what they're going to do, what their strategy is going to be before the next life crisis occurs. And when they do, you have to be there for support, be it in a clinic or as in the case of Verta Health that I work for, you can do that even potentially remotely with the help of health coaches. So I think the thing is, prepare ahead and be there to support people. And in that support, you want to be able to constantly remind them of their goals and how they felt physically when they were sticking with their dietary plan. Finally, do you routinely or occasionally recommend low-carb substitutes such as breads or wraps for your patients? I do. I think they can be very helpful for people to adhere in the long term. And we have to be really careful because there's a lot of things out on the market that'll say low carb and really aren't. Or when you pick up the ingredient list, you see things you've never heard of before. And that just reminds me to say one of the main tenets of a low carbohydrate and a high fat diet is that it needs to be a whole food based diet, real foods. So you can get low carbohydrate bread that adheres to that whole food idea, but you have to be cautious in what you pick. The other option, of course, is there are just a plethora of recipes online and so people can also make it themselves. Well, I wish we had more time to spend, but I must bring this to a close. This is Dr. Barry Menon for ReachMD, and I've been speaking with Dr. Sarah Hallberg of the University of Indiana. And I want to thank you for being with us today, Dr. Hallberg. Thanks so much for having me.